Good morning again. We are continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. Uh, Acts 19, verses 1 to 20. It's printed for you in your bulletins if you want to follow along there. Uh, this is a point at which Paul, he, he comes back to Ephesus. Uh, he had hoped he would, and he had told that to the Ephesians. They wanted him to continue talking to them in, in the synagogue, and, and he said he'd be back, and now he's back. Um, and in this return, we get a better feel for the city of Ephesus, uh, for what was going on there. You get a sense of, of the sort of culture and character of the place. And by the end of the account, it says that everyone in Asia had heard about Jesus. Now, that's a pretty remarkable thing, but Paul spent quite a bit of time there, years, in fact, in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus, Asia, we think of Asia as this giant continent. Uh, Asia was a, a particular area of Asia Minor, uh, the, what is today modern-day Turkey. And so, in that section anyway, everyone had heard about Jesus. What a remarkable thing. So with that, let's turn to our text, text Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Or there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue for three months. Uh, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits carried out of them, came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by this Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of, Jewish, of, the Jew, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them, on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray as we study your word this morning that your spirit indeed would be present and active as I use my words and that you would use my words as weak as they are uh, in mighty ways, bringing the hope of the gospel to bear on our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text proves that Presbyterians existed from the very earliest moments. And how can I say such a thing like that? That's a pretty bold statement, right? Well, it's because Paul met these 12 disciples who had never heard of the Holy Spirit. I I, I know, I'm jesting. I realize as a Presbyterian that the Holy Spirit exists, but it's often the complaint against us Presbyterian types that uh, we diminish or dismiss the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of others. Uh, And I can say this as a Presbyterian minister, right? I can make jest and and joke as a Presbyterian minister and the son of a Presbyterian minister. Um, And I can even confess that I get a bit nervous whenever we talk or when someone starts talking about the gifts of the Spirit. just get a little uncomfortable. Uh, This is... You know, I'm Presbyterian. We don't, we don't do things in those ways. But as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit is alive and active in the establishment of the church. And the Holy Spirit is alive and active today. You see, our real problem is not that we're uncomfortable with speaking in tongues or prophecies and things like that. No, actually our problem goes quite a bit deeper. The problem is that we are often doubtful and skeptical that God's Spirit is actually present and active. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we think that even if He is active, we we view Him kind of like, and I'm thinking about this because it was so hot the other day, kind of like the box fan that's in the house. It's kind of working to cool you off. It's doing a little bit. But we're looking and wondering, is God present? Is He powerful? Is His Spirit with us? And this morning, what I want us to answer is with a resounding yes. That He is active. That He is powerful. And I want to look at the fact that He's not just powerful, but He is absolutely powerful. He is the most powerful one. And that He is indeed active in building His church. I want to look at this in three parts. First, the Spirit of Christ alone gives new birth or regeneration. Uh, Secondly, I want to see that the Spirit of Christ has power over evil in the world. We ought to profess that and and believe that, that that He has power over evil in this world. And, And maybe the hardest one of all... The Spirit of Christ has power over our sin. It's maybe the hardest one of all. That Christ has power over our sin. So first, the Spirit of Christ alone gives new birth or regeneration. Last week we met Apollos. 
And he had a problem. He only knew of the baptism of John the Baptist. And so you will remember Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and instructed him. And then he was sent off and he went to Achaia, into into Corinth, uh, where he is currently at the point of our text. Um, But here in our text, uh, we meet some more disciples who were even more confused or had greater confusion or more ignorant than Apollos himself. Uh, they, they not only, uh, only knew of the baptism of John the Baptist, but they also had no idea about the Holy Spirit. Now, I joked about them being Presbyterians, these twelve, but I do believe that there is a subtle unbelief that is peculiar in our Western, whatever you want to call it, post-enlightenment, modernistic, materialistic Christianity. There is, uh, and, and maybe even particularly to our version of it in Reformed Presbyterian circles, um, it's not that we're ignorant of the Holy Spirit, but rather, like I said in the introduction, it's a, it's a kind of incredulity, a, a little bit of unbelief, uh, a, we don't see it. We can't touch it. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't manifest itself in these gross ways that we see here in the text with tongues and fire in the same way. But, and so we, we're a little skeptical about the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we'll have to unpack our text a little more to get a better grasp on this power. But uh, let's, let's begin here. Paul comes to these men, and after determining that they had this lack of understanding, this lack of knowledge, he instructs them concerning the difference between baptism, the baptism of Jesus, and the baptism of John. And I mentioned these differences a little bit last week, but I want to just highlight them again. Uh, as, as Paul says here, John's baptism was preparatory. It looked forward to Jesus coming. It was calling the people to repent, to prepare, and to be ready because the Lord Jesus was on His way. Uh, Jesus' baptism was the fulfillment or the the completion of the thing. It it, it doesn't point forward, but it points to the death and the, the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord. It points to the work that He does in cleansing and washing us and forgiving us our sins. Baptism also signifies that union that we have, that, that, that union that we have with Christ, being set apart and, and, and part of that covenant community body. This is what baptism, the baptism of Jesus is. But one in particular area that when we talk about baptism that is very significant and maybe most significant to our text this morning is this idea of new birth or regeneration. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. In the third chapter of the Gospel of John, he's talking with him and wrestling with him, and Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. What are you, what are you saying that I have to enter again into my uh, mother's womb? And he says, no, you, but you have to be born of water and spirit. You have to have natural birth and spiritual birth. Another way that Scripture talks about this new birth or regeneration is in the prophet Ezekiel, which we actually read from earlier, where it talks about our hearts of stone being made into hearts of flesh. So Paul, after having instructed these twelve men, he baptized them in the name of Jesus Christ. And all those things I just mentioned, including this spiritual new birth, this heart of stone being made into a heart of flesh, 
one that beats for God, is pictured in those waters of baptism. And as Paul laid his hands on him, the text says that the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they began speaking in tongues and in prophesying. Now, uh, this isn't the first time that we've seen this, right? Uh, We're talking about Ascension Sunday. Uh, What happened on the Ascension? The Lord ascended. Do you remember? This is the very first week of, of our series in the book of Acts. Way back. Uh, Last summer, almost a year, um, Jesus said, I'm going to send my helper to you. And what did he do? A few days later, the, 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 the disciples were in that room waiting, and they were, they were worshiping together, and they were praying together. And then Peter preaches, and the Spirit descends, and tongues of fire. And everybody heard the gospel in their own tongue. These manifestations of the Spirit. This is Ephesus here. It's a mini Pentecost among these twelve men. And I think it's easy for us to read this text and be, to just be really focused on those manifestations that we've seen uh, periodically throughout uh, the book of Acts. Remember, it wasn't just in Jerusalem at Pentecost, but you, you had it again in Samaria when the gospel was going out from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we also saw it um, at Cornelius' house, do you remember? Uh, in Cornelius' house. And then here again in Ephesus as the gospel is spreading across the lands. We can get focused on those things, and they're they're pretty miraculous and amazing, but I think we miss the real manifestation of the power of the Spirit in these twelve men if we don't see what God's Spirit was doing in their hearts. How He was changing them. It wasn't this simply this this manifestation of strange tongues and, and prophetic word. It wasn't simply God showing His power in those ways. You see, Christ sent His Spirit primarily to do one thing. He does a lot of things. He brings comfort. He encourages us by, by, by praying on our behalf. He, he is uh, uh, the one who convicts our heart of sin. All of those things are true. But there's one primary role that the Spirit has from creation all the way on. Uh, and that is to bring life. To bring life. New life, redemption. To take stony hearts, hearts that have rebelled against God, hearts that hate God, to take those hearts and to remold them, to change them and renew them and cause them to be anew with hearts that love God. That's the power of the Spirit, to breathe life into us. Sometimes I think we miss seeing the power of God because we're looking for something else. Something different. Something showy. Maybe something that we can touch or taste. But maybe that's because we forgot who we once were. Paul in his letter to the Ephesian church a few years after this reminds us of this truth and he says this in chapter 2. And you... You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived 
and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, did what? Made us alive together in Christ Jesus. That's the power of the Spirit. To bring new life. Regeneration. There's no power in this world other than the power of the Holy Spirit that can take the dead and raise them to new life. The greatest display of the power of God is this. Though we were dead, we now live. Praise God. But there's more to the amazing power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, He causes us to be born again. And we can rejoice and give thanks to God for that reality. But He also has power over the effects or over evil in the world. We can get easily, and I speak as one who is like this, we can get easily discouraged when we look at the world. When we see the effects of the fall, when we see the brokenness of, of people, and when we see people hurting people, when we see injustices, when we see corruption, when we see uh, illnesses, when we see broken bodies, when we see death, all those things can cause us to get frustrated, to be discouraged. Is evil winning? It's impossible to avoid, right? No amount of putting our head in the sand can keep us from seeing it. Or worse, experiencing it. Well, Paul picks up where he left off. He entered back into the synagogue and began teaching again. And he was there for a while, boldly preaching and persuading. But as usual, what we've seen week in and week out, he faces opposition in the synagogue. And as he's facing opposition in the synagogue, they start to speak against the way and they start to, to malign him and the disciples. And so Paul does what he does. He leaves the synagogue and he goes into the, the, the Gentile, the Greek, community. Uh, and there he enters the Hall of Tyrannus. Uh, that's a, so this is the Hall of Tyrannus. The, the word scola, is a, it's like a school or a lecture hall, you might call it. And maybe it was of some philosopher teacher named Tyrannus. And I was thinking about that. And I've, I've had some scary teachers over the years. But if you're given the name Tyrannus, uh, it, it, you know, that's a different level of scary. Um, anyway, Paul wasn't put off by the name and he was able to rent the space or use the space or maybe it was even that Tyrannus was an ironic name or maybe he had heard the gospel and his, his tyrant nature had changed and he invited the Apostle Paul to come in. And it's fun to imagine how he ended up in this place. Um, we don't know. But no matter the case, Paul continues to preach Christ for another two years. And in that time, not only is the whole region informed about Jesus, but we're told that God did extraordinary miracles through the hand of Paul. 
So much so that, you know, Paul, remember, he was a tent maker, and so he had things, I guess, that you might use to make tents, I guess, an apron, maybe handkerchiefs, I don't know. But he had these things that touched his skin, and he would, uh, uh, I don't know if he would give them away, or people would just kind of snag them, the kind of the way we do with sports uh, paraphernalia, you know, <laughs> The, 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 the receiver throws his gloves up into the, into the stands and, you know, they become this, like, great thing and these sweaty gloves. But maybe it was something like that. I don't know. Um, Paul, they grab his handkerchief and this his apron and it, they use it to touch uh, the sick, the demon-possessed. And in those moments, God works mightily. Uh, I have to confess, it's all very strange and a little bit curious. And I think it's helpful for us to learn something more about Ephesus as we sort of ask what's going on here. Because, uh, you know, this is not unprecedented. If you think about Jesus, remember the woman who had, who had been bleeding for uh, you know, a long time and he was pressed in by all the crowds. And, and the woman reaches up and touches the cloak of his garment and the Lord Jesus felt the power go out from him. And there, there is something there that God uses those strange means to, to work his power and his uh, amazing uh, uh, transformative power in the lives of people. Um, But nevertheless, it's it's a little odd here. So let's learn a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was actually known uh, for its magicians or its um, sorcery. Uh, There are... um, in the historical records, there are uh, talk of, of we have it here. One example of it here, where they took uh, their their sorcery scrolls and they threw them in a fire and burned them up. But we have other extant uh, history where it talks about uh, leaders and authorities doing this, coming taking those scrolls. They, you know, they maybe they had some evil to them and they would burn them up in a, in a fire. We also have some examples of the kind of scrolls that would have been found in Ephesus that were found in Alexandria, and maybe they were traveled, you know, Ephesus is uh, it's a port city, maybe they ended up in Alexandria in Egypt, uh, who knows, but we have some examples of it. But the Ephesians were known for this. Uh, it was part of their identity. They were superstitious. They were into magical incantations. Magic words. My kids go around saying magic words all the time. I know that sounds bad for a pastor's kid, but uh, they they uh, they're into the Harry Potter books, and so all of a sudden, my my son will just be frozen stiff, and I'll be like, "What's going on? He's not moving, and he's telling me to say special word to like undo the frozen spell." And I'm like, "I don't know. <laughs> Let's go, buddy." Uh, this was this is just all in jest and fun and play, but for the, for the Ephesians, this was an important part of their identity. It was their, their life. And what I think is going on here is that God is showing up the Ephesians' quote-unquote power. God is coming in and He's saying, this is not power. I will show you power. Just by touching this little garment, I will show you how I can do amazing things because I am God. It's a really interesting thing that happens after we have this account. 
God is showing himself this power through the Apostle Paul and through these things. And other people want to get, a, get, a, get in on this. Some of the sources are like, wow, this man, Jesus, he's, his name has power. Maybe if we say, in the name of Jesus, we can do all sorts of powerful things too. And so we, we learn about these sons of Sceva, these, these men who were, who were sons of one of the Jewish high priests. They were into uh, this kind of uh, exorcism, and they were exorcists, and they go into a demon-possessed man's house, and they're, they're ready there to exorcise in the name of Jesus. They wanted to, to get the power for themselves, and they were sorely disappointed. Literally, they were sorely disappointed. They were beat up. They were stripped naked by a single man. The sense is that there was a group of them, and this man who was demon-possessed overpowered them, stripped them in the process, and they ran and fled into the street. And maybe in the greatest twist of irony, right, for Ephesus, they were trying to show their power over these demons, The demon talks and he says, Jesus I know. Paul, yeah, I recognize him. He's connected to that Jesus. But who are you? Jesus is known. Jesus is proclaimed even by these evil spirits. In Ephesus, God was showing His mighty power to heal and or heal and combat evil through the Apostle Paul. He was showing that these superstitious Ephesians, that there was no power in heaven or on earth that compared to Him. I believe that we live in a world that is not just physical and material, but that we... As Ephesians, the letter uh, speaks of, we live in a world full of powers and principalities. And one of the greatest effects of evil in our culture, in our Western society, has been in convincing, no, yet I, I think a better word for this is duping our society as a whole into believing that there are no forces of evil, that there is no spiritual realm. That we are just bodies. That there was no fall of man that corrupted creation, that sin entered in, and that the created order was disrupted, and that even our illness and our sin and our sickness and our death itself was a result of this spiritual battle that is going on. The fall. Our frailty as humans. It's not just a material issue. Now, don't, don't take this the wrong way. There are traditions out there that would say because all illnesses are spiritual, there is no need for doctors. This is not what I'm saying in the least whatsoever. I'm just pointing out that we live in a world that has been deeply affected by spiritual matters. The problem with such a view that we have in our culture is that we have trouble making sense of how wickedness comes to be. Why do people do evil things? Why is there pain and suffering in this world? How does a materialist answer those questions? But what we learn from our text is this. 
Not only does evil exist, but including and not excluding the existence of evil spirits and the existence of sickness and pain and suffering. Um, But what we learn most significantly is that God is greater and more powerful than those forces, than those powers of evil in this world. In fact, He rules over them. And eventually He will do away with all of them. And as we look at this text, what we're getting is little punctuated glimpse into the power of God over the created world. You think this stuff all just has continued from eternity past to eternity present, but let me tell you, sin and death is not meant to be and will not last forever. We have hope in a God who is powerful. And so as we look around and see the gross effects of sin and evil, we can cry out to the God who has power over them. And we can call out and ask Him, break those powers of evil in this world, even now. That's why when we get together, what do we pray for? Healing of our loved ones. To help people who are suffering in sin and suffering in all sorts of ways. We ask for God to enter in, to break that power. We pray for justice. We pray for peace. We pray that God would, by His great power, deliver us from evil because His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, we've seen that the Spirit of Christ alone gives new life and that He has power over evil in the world. But finally, I just want to land here to take it sort of down a personal level. Christ has power over your sin. He has power over my sin. It's one thing to look out there and to believe that God can overrule and destroy evil, but it's a whole other thing to look in our hearts and believe that God can deal with the mess in there. One of the greatest discouragements we face is to see that same sin crop up over and over and over and over again. It can cause you to question your salvation. It can cause you to wonder, is God really present? Is He indeed powerful? Can he really deal with this thing that feels so deeply rooted in my life? I think we can take comfort and hope as we look at our text. After the sons of Sceva were tossed out on the street naked and bloodied by this powerful demon, the text says, uh, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As they witnessed the power and manifestation of the Spirit of God in Ephesus... 
First, in descending on those twelve disciples in power. Secondly, in healing and exercising demons through the Apostle Paul. And then thirdly, uh, through the incomparative uh, impotence of the sons of Sceva, we're told that fear fell upon them all and that the name of Jesus was extolled. God was using these powerful outward signs as a witness to Himself. And as the people saw God at work, they feared Him. Not only that, but they turned away from their sin. It says they they believed and they took those things, those objects that had been so tightly wrapped up in their identity as Ephesians, that they took those things and they threw them into the fire. How were they able to do that? The power of God at work in their hearts, causing them to repent. Causing them to repent. And what causes repentance like this in our hearts? Well, it is only God who causes repentance. The truth is that we know that there's nothing in us that will cause us to turn from those deeply rooted sins because those sins are so connected to who we are, aren't they? They're so wrapped up in our being that we feel that to root them up would be to lose our life. So how in the world can we ever repent of sin? Well, it's because God takes that heart and He changes it and He molds it by His power. He takes a heart and He changes it and the Spirit works in us, convicting us of sin, giving us affections for Himself, for the truth. He helps to open our eyes to see the destructive power of sin. The other thing that will cause a repentance like this in our hearts, obviously the work of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts, but it's also when we see God's power at work. When we take our time to to look and say, how has God been at work, not just in my life, but how has God been at work in other lives? When we share words of testimony saying, this is what has happened. And we see people walking in faith. We can be encouraged and reminded that, wait a minute, this sin does not have dominion over me. Christ does. He rules and reigns over my life. And that's what's on display here in Ephesus. The power and the goodness of God. And as they see that, they're humbled in fear and trembling over a God who has such magnificent power. But they're also amazed in wonder and awe at the goodness of the Gospel. Everything is wrapped up in what Paul is teaching. Jesus The one who had all glory and power in heaven. The one who could, by His very word, create. Who enjoyed perfect fellowship and union with the Father came to this world in order that He might display His power in a way that confounds the world by giving up His only life. His life. It's the Father giving up His only Son. And in so doing, the power of death as He rose again from the dead was done away with. When we think about that, when we reflect on that work of Christ on the cross, 
That work of Christ breaking through on the third day, that work of Christ ascending into heaven and sending down His Spirit, and that day to come when He will come in power and do away with all evil in this world and all brokenness and sin and death itself will be done. When we start to focus on those things, it causes our heart to repent, to rest in a God who is both powerful who is good and who loves us. So as we go out today and as we consider these things, I want to encourage you. Look to see where God is working by His powerful Spirit in the lives of your family, in the lives of your friends, in the lives of the church. Uh, even as He stays, God stays evil in the world and promotes good, Give thanks to God. Rejoice. Repent. Trust that He can do that in your heart. Turn from your sin and hope in the powerful working of Christ and His Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You uh, for Your grace. We thank You for the power of the Holy Spirit, that You send Your Spirit into our hearts and into our lives, uh, that we have hope. The Apostle Peter called it the dunamis, the dynamite of God. All that we need for life and godliness is ours. Remind us of that. By your powerful spirit, work repentance and faith in us. Remind us that, that that sin that clings so closely does not have the last say, but Lord, you have conquered sin and you have conquered death. And help us to put our hope and trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.